electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Paul Tudor Jones, the billionaire hedge fund manager and philanthropist on the markets, the election, Bitcoin, and why he's looking past November 3rd. I don't think I've ever seen a time when things are going to be as volatile as they could be over the next 6 to 12 months. Pro football is kicking off more than games. The Washington football team is activating voters this election season. The team's president, Jason Wright, explains the campaign, plus what they could be called when it's all over. This is the identity that will shape the next 100 years of this franchise. And it's really important that we not just engage our fans through digital, social media, have them fill out a poll. We need to not understand what they want, but why they want it. Those interviews and hyping up original short form content. It's sexy, it's digital, it's, you know, it's like, oh, we don't want these legacy assets. A farewell to the short-lived shorts at Quibi. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin, and we are watching you. 2020 has been a doozy. But last week, about 780,000 people filed for first-time unemployment benefits. That's the lowest number since March 14th, the earliest days of the coronavirus pandemic hitting the U.S. economy. Just after that, American workers faced an avalanche of layoffs when non-essential businesses were forced to close and uncertainty took center stage. Today on the podcast, we check in with well-known investor Paul Tudor Jones, who this year has been something of a prophet. Paul Tudor Jones was the first money manager to tell CNBC that he was concerned about the coronavirus back in January on Squawk Box from the World Economic Forum in Davos. There's no antidote. There's no vaccination. Can't do it. There's no cure. And we don't even know what the incubation period is. Are you seeing through this or not? I'm Friday. a trader, not an investor. Correct. So if I was an investor, I'd be really nervous. That was January 21st, before any confirmed positive cases of this new novel virus in the United States. Paul Tudor Jones is the founder and chief investment officer of Tudor Investment Corporation, the chairman of Just Capital, and the founder of the nonprofit Robinhood, which serves New York City's homeless population. The next time we spoke to him, in late March, the U.S. equity markets were roiling in response to government stay-at-home orders and job losses in the millions. What a damn mess. And Jones was deeply concerned. We've got to be careful not to mythologize this into the pandemic Godzilla because we can beat this thing. We're going to squash it and send it back to the oblivion that it crawled out of. Paul Tudor Jones has been a longtime market participant and has seen pretty dark times. Let's go even further back, a few decades. You may recognize this voice, longtime NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw. A shattering six and a half hours on Wall Street. The Dow off more than 500 points. Paper losses more than $500 billion. October 19th, 1987. Wall Street's Black Monday. 
33 years ago, just this week, was Wall Street's Black Monday. Here's a clip of our CNBC colleague Bill Griffith on an early and now extinct cable channel, the Financial News Network. Uh, Paul, can you hear me okay? I can hear you, Bill. Okay. I'm not sure I want to, but I can. With a 33-year-old, Paul Tudor Jones. I think that we've got uh, a market that has been seriously overvalued for some time. I think that what we've witnessed the past couple of days has obviously been the piercing of this bubble. And I think that what you saw today and what you may see tomorrow morning will be the culmination of this selling climax for now. And I emphasize for now. I would say Wall Street uniformly was uh, unprepared for this magnitude of a drop. That might have been the last time he was unprepared. Paul Tudor Jones joined us on Squawk Box today, a week before Robinhood is hosting a virtual investors conference to discuss where he's putting money now after nearly eight months of pandemic and what uncertainty around the U.S. election means for the markets as we continue to grapple with a health crisis and an economic one. Here's Andrew. Paul, you have uh, tried to help us through for so really throughout this whole year, you've come on at, um, frankly, uh, really specific and almost opportune times with some great advice about where things stand. So we want to get a sense from you about where you think the markets are right now and what you're doing about it, especially that we're now just less than two weeks away from the election. Well, I'm, I'm here, obviously, to talk about the Robin Hood Investor Conference next week, which we timed to be something that was going to be really helpful to those people that uh, choose to attend it. So I don't think the timing's uh, anything other than something that uh, we plan. Um, the election's obviously a really big deal, has huge impact on the markets. Uh, I think there's so many things around it that I think there's a lot of false narratives around what will happen uh, in the election. Uh, in terms of the impact that it's going to have on markets, and it's going to be really interesting to see it play out over the coming over the coming months. I, I don't think I've ever seen a time when things are going to be as volatile as they could be over the next six to twelve months. And it's because of the huge amounts of numbers that are being thrown around, both in terms of the fiscal packages and the monetary packages. So uh, it's going to be a really, really interesting time. Paul, you said false narratives. What, what do you mean by that? What, what, what's, what's the false piece of it in your mind? When I look at this election, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to have uh, a Biden victory <clears throat> and, a, <clears throat> and a blue wave, so, and, and maybe that's wrong. But I'm just looking at the odds. I'm looking at the polls, and clearly, clearly that could be wrong. But I think the markets believe that's going to be really good for uh, stocks. And um, I think the narrative around what will happen if we have that blue wave will be correct in the sense that next year you're going to get a massive fiscal stimulus. You're going to get a big boost to the economy. There's no doubt that Main Street under this program is going to benefit. And you probably will have higher nominal profits. But the other side of that is what also happens to financial assets. And I think uh, under a blue wave and the Biden tax plan, uh, I think financial assets over the long run suffer uh, a great deal. There, there's a, if you kind of go back and look in history, there's a, 
inverse relationship, and it's loose, but it's clearly there. There's an inverse relationship between uh, stock multiples and capital gains uh, tax. So we're the we'll be the highest capital gains tax at 43 percent since 1922. And if again, if we just do just a, a very simple regression, and again, there's great variability within that fit, but you can kind of say that for every uh, 10 point increase in the capital gains tax, it probably subtracts somewhere between two and five multiples from the S&P. So with the S&P at 25 multiple right now, uh, assuming that the, that the uh, tax hike stayed in place over many years, maybe eight years, then you probably think over time you get multiple compression. You're clearly going to get margin compression because in addition to capital gains tax hike, you're also going to get a corporate tax hike. So that probably takes off by itself $13 or $14 from, from earnings uh, next year. So I think it's I think the Biden tax plan is actually uh, going to do exactly what it's designed to, which is to um, help Main Street, uh, help uh, the average American, and it's going to come at the expense of the one percent, primarily whose wealth is uh, encapsulated in the stock market and financial assets, uh, and it's going to come at their expense. And you're probably going to get a multiple compression. Uh, and you'll probably get some kind of mean reversion back to more normal long-term uh, stock averages. So I, I look at um, the Biden tax plan as, and I know there's a variety of, of other people, and they may end up being right, but I look at it as something that's going to cause uh, multiple compression. You could have a situation where you actually have higher profits in 2021, and yet the market's down because you have multiple compression. And, and that, that would be my central thesis. The, the other narrative would be. Go ahead. Well, the other narrative would be that these taxes aren't going to go into effect until uh, 2022. And I think if you just kind of go through the logic on this, clearly these taxes are going to be retroactive to January 2nd. The last thing the Democrats are going to do is impose a tax hike, tax hike in 2022 in the year of election. They're also would lose under that second stimulus plan, a whole year year's worth of revenue to put towards their fiscal, skin, fiscal spending programs, which are expansive. So uh, I think you'll have the added whammy that will come to the realization over the course of the next 30 to 40 days that those tax hikes will be retroactive to January 2nd, and that you'll see a huge rush to harvest capital gains in this calendar year at the 23% rate rather than the 43% rate. And by our calculations, every 12 and a half, <clears throat> let's assume that you're sitting on a, a long-term embedded uh, capital gain. How much of that are you going to harvest at a 23% rate versus a 43% rate? And then we went through and did the math and looking at the investors that would have embedded long-term capital gains, uh, for every 12.5% that a person, for every 12.5% of capital gains that would be harvested uh, out of the embedded capital gains in the stock market right now, it would probably create something like $100 billion worth of selling in the market. So 
you you be the judge. What do you think people with long-term capital gains, how much of that right. will that could be founders of uh, tech companies or employees or long-term shareholders, how much of that will they liquefy? Uh, or will they so, try so Paul, to monetize a lower rate Paul, this year if, versus next year? If, Paul, if you're right, what do you do about it? So as an investor today, based on what you're talking about, we haven't seen that sell off yet. Maybe people are going to wait uh, to, to see what the actual election portends. Uh, would, you, would you try to get ahead of that? Um, how, how, how would you trade it, if you will? <laughs> I've been unfortunately trying to get ahead of it for far too long in the past few weeks, and it's been wrong. Um, again, and the reason why I prefaced all of this by saying we're going to have so much volatility, you're going to also have passed at some point in the next six to eight weeks, or 12 weeks, you're going to have the first stimulus package, which is going to be around $1.7 trillion. That'll probably be uh, effective sometime in the first quarter of next year. And sometime in February, let's say, you're going to have $700 billion, February and March, not $700 billion. The total package, let's say, will be $700 billion that will ultimately end up in the bank accounts of, uh, of Americans. And we saw what happened when that happened last April and May. Robin Hood Nation, the other Robin Hood Nation, uh, went crazy and bought stocks. Um, and so you're going to have, at some point in the first quarter next year, you're going to have a big move to the upside from whatever level that might be uh, as people get cash from this first stimulus program and they deploy that in a variety of financial assets, which could be stocks and bonds. So it's going to be really tricky. I could easily see a situation where the market sells off into year end and then you have that typical beginning of the year rally that might ramp all right. the way through the, the end of the first, certainly into the mid part of the first quarter. All of that, Paul. When we and go ahead, I was I was gonna I was just gonna add on top of that. You know, the last time we talked to you, I don't know if it was the last time we talked to you, but but back in May, uh, you had uh, told us that you were buying about two percent or putting two about two percent of your assets into Bitcoin. Uh, which has been uh, on a wild ride upward, uh, especially even in the past 48 hours, as PayPal has announced that it's going to allow Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies uh, onto its platform. Um, what do you do? Are, are you selling any right now? Are you buying even more? What's the, what's the thought? Well, Bitcoin, re remember, the reason that uh, I like Bitcoin and wrote about it to my investors was because Back in March and April, it became really apparent, given the monetary policy that was being pursued by the Fed, the incredible quantitative easing that they were doing and other central banks were doing, that we were in an unprecedented time. And that um, given the fact that we were going to try to monetize many of the negative issues that COVID brought, that one had to begin to think about how you defend yourself against inflation with M2 now growing at a 25% annual rate, so which we haven't seen in 80 years, by the way. The last time we saw that inflation was 3 4 5%. Um, so uh, the reason I recommended Bitcoin is because it was one of a menu of inflation trades like gold, like tips break-evens, like copper, like GSCI. 
uh, like being along the yield curve. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that Bitcoin was going to be the best of the inflation trades, the defensive trades that you would take, because uh, when you looked at the overall market caps of all the rest of them and you looked at all the characteristics, Bitcoin had the advantage of, of being, had a very small coterie of people who were investing in it. It was portable, it was liquid, had a variety of characteristics that made it a great inflation hedge. The one thing it didn't have is it didn't have integrity and long-term staying power, which every day that goes by, of course, it, it gains on that. It gains on credibility and, and integrity. Um, but what I what I didn't appreciate, and now I now I know what it must feel like uh, to be a tech investor. Remember, I don't really trade individual stocks. I'm just a macro trader. But uh, Bitcoin has a lot of the characteristics of being an early investor in a tech company. And I didn't realize it until uh, after, uh, unfortunately, I came on your show and got besieged by God knows how many different people on Bitcoin. Uh, and again, I've, I've got small single digit investment in Bitcoin. That's it. I'm not a Bitcoin flag bearer. But what I learned was, and what I was so surprised by, is that Bitcoin has this enormous contingent of really, really smart and sophisticated people who believe in it. Uh, and, it's, and, and now when I think of the menu of, of the inflation hedges, uh, the, the thing that Bitcoin has, again, it's like investing with Steve Jobs and Apple or investing in Google early. You've got this group of that's, by the way, crowdsourced all over the world that are dedicated to seeing Bitcoin succeed in it becoming a commonplace store of value and transactional to boot uh, at, a, at a very basic level. And so I've never had an inflation hedge where you have a kicker that you also have great intellectual capital behind it. So that makes me... Uh, even more constructive on it. If you think about it, if you're long twos, thirties, right, you're effectively short the bond market. That's your inflation hedge. You're really betting on the fallacy of mankind rather than uh, right. its ingenuity and entrepreneurialism. So so I, I like Bitcoin even more now than I did then. I think we're in the first inning of Bitcoin uh, and then it's got a long way to go. Hey, Paul, uh we, we uh, before we let you go, we got we got to talk about this conference that you have got coming up because you have huge names. Ken Griffin's going to be on uh, on the stage. Stan Druckenmiller's on the stage. Jared Bernstein, uh, Lee Ainsley, and so many others. Um, what's the thing that you want to find out next week? Well, look, I, I'm so excited. Uh, I've got three panels. One with Ken Griffin maybe the best business builder in the financial world. So I want to talk to him about that. Then we've got Stan Druckenmiller, the greatest macro trader who can frame uh, the election and this fiscal and monetary craziness better than anybody. Um, we've got a COVID panel. We've got the chief scientific officer and president of Regeneron, Dave Ricks from Eli Lilly, who's their president, chief executive, Scott Gottlieb. We're going to find out when we're all going to get that needle in our arm. I'm, we're going to hold them to a day that that's going to happen. So we'll learn everything about COVID. 
We've got best ideas from, from people that are up like 140, 125%. Last year, if you'd done our best ideas at this conference, I think you were up 85% on your portfolio. I've, I'm kicking myself that I didn't do the best ideas from our environmental panel last year because they made an absolute killing both on the long side and the short side uh, in the energy space. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to, it's going to be an incredible two days. It's going to be virtual. Uh, and all the money goes to helping people in need who are really being hurt by COVID. Um, 100% of your, uh, of the subscription price is going to be to help people in need. You can't think of a better way to get actionable items and make you money at the same time do good. Uh, Paul, we wish you uh, a lot of luck, and uh, we, we'll be watching that conference ourselves. Um, we want to thank you for being with us, of course, as well, and hope to talk to you very, very soon, maybe on the other side uh, of, uh, of all of this volatility and the election. But we appreciate it very, very much. Thank you Thanks. so much. Coming up, president of the Washington football team on starting plays, voter plays, and staying safe midseason. Jason Wright. The NFL is at a scale that some of these other sports aren't at. The size of the roster, the complexity. And so it was inevitable that things would happen, but I actually think the response has been very good. The contact tracing technology we use is excellent. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This weekend's NFL matchup between the Washington football team and the Dallas Cowboys is being dubbed the DM Votes Game, part of the Washington campaign to try and encourage voter registration and turnout this election cycle. Joining us right now with more on the initiative is Jason Wright. He's the president of the Washington football team. And Jason, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here again, Becky. I'm great. You know, I think about all the things you have on your plate right now, trying to do the NFL season through COVID, trying to figure out what happens with a lot of the cultural issues on the team, even trying to come up with a new name. Why are you taking on this initiative in the middle of all that? Well, it's, it's important that right from jump, we signal the new culture we want to build by being real investors in our community. And it's unambiguously good and nonpartisan to help people exercise their voice. It's part of our push on equity. And so we're trying to lead by example. And I'm excited to announce that 100% of our players and coaches are registered to vote. And they're already starting to send in their ballots. And so I'm quite proud of what we've done so far. In terms of getting out the vote for the community, DMV, DM Votes, stands for D.C., Maryland, uh, Virginia. How are, you, how are you doing that in the arena? What, what will you be doing to try and encourage others to vote? Well, if we, you know, if we have two things going for us. We've got our reach as an NFL team, and then we've got our assets as an NFL team. We've got our stadium, and we've been using it to register people to vote on Turnout Tuesdays every week leading up to the election. And, in fact, we had a really good moment this week when uh, the Virginia registering system went down. And we were present to be able to get people to register. Um, and so that was a really important moment for the area. 
And, and we will also be a super polling site on Election Day. Super polling site, meaning what? People can show up there and, and vote, yeah, drop off their yeah, ballot? Exactly. We can have up to 30,000 people come through and vote. Um, we've got it all socially <laughs> distanced. We've got it all set up. We've got volunteer poll workers. And, and we're also thinking about meeting the needs of folks that make it difficult to vote sometimes. So across the area, sure. we're providing vouchers for Lyft. And through Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen, we're actually providing food for folks uh, who are waiting in line and need some grub so that they can actually wait it out and vote. You know, it'd be something if you saw 30,000 people who actually came through the, studios, uh, through the stadium to vote, because you're not going to see that with the fans. The governor of Maryland has said that you could have up to 10 percent of the stadium's capacity there for the games. But you guys are still sticking with the idea that you just want friends and family. There will be no fans, no additional fans uh, at the stadium for the Dallas game on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. We're eager to get fans back in the stadium, but eagerness is not uh, is not a we're not going to be in a rush. We're not going to be in a rush. Um, but I'm excited that we have more leeway. And so we're going to take it on a week by week basis. And I, I hope we can have fans back in after our bye week. Um, and we're working closely with Prince George's County and the governor's office to try to make that happen. So stay tuned. What are you guys using as metrics for that? Does it depend on local community spread? Are you watching the transmission um, factors that are there? How, how do you guys figure out whether it's going to be safe to have people back in or, or what standards you'll be using? Yeah, there's at least three broad factors. One is our partnership with the government. They've got real, uh, real-time insights into how rates are ticking up, and they have some good views on leading indicators, and that's where the governor and the county's guidance comes from. Uh, so one is staying in close communication with them. The second is us watching rates. The third is assessing our own internal situation. How is our team doing on it? How have we been doing our protocols? And, and, you know, we've got some unique situations here. We've got a head coach that's going through cancer treatments. We have to be prudent um, about what we do and bring into the stadium. So we look at all of those factors and we'll make a decision. Hey, Jason, what can you tell us just about how things have been going, trying to watch the COVID cases when it comes to the NFL? We've seen some teams, not yours, that have had pretty high numbers of COVID cases that have come through. What do you think you guys are doing differently or you think you've just been lucky? No, I don't think we're doing anything uh, that differently. It, it all comes down to a bit of uh, individual behaviors and luck, frankly. Um, you know, the NFL is at a scale that, uh, that some of these other sports aren't at, the size of the roster, the complexity. Uh, so it was inevitable that things would happen, but I actually think the response has been very good. The contact tracing technology we use is excellent. And that's been able to, they've been able to very quickly identify folks that need to be quarantined. Um, and so I think the, the response has been excellent. And I think the, the trickiness is as, as things may continue to pop up um, across the fall, is in scheduling and the league office is doing their best to run algorithms and, and manage scheduling. But we do have the advantage that we have fewer games. So I think one way or another, we'll get through this season in a safe way and we'll all feel good at the end of it. Great rivalry on Sunday, uh, Jason. Um, kills me that Dak uh, got hurt. And, and I'm from Cincinnati. So yeah. I'm taking I'm taking Washington because I've I've seen uh, I've seen I've seen. Uh, I'll take uh, that. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> who's starting? Who do you, is who's uh, Washington going to start uh, at quarterback? I think coach has been clear that uh, Kyle Allen is our starter at quarterback. Um, so unless something changes, that's the case. But again, I'm on the business side, so I know as much as you do. So you you Google it. I'll Google it. And we'll go. <laughs> Did you like? I like the two point. I liked going for that. Uh, I hope you didn't get too much. Uh, grief. Did you, as a as a business guy and as as a football guy, what do you think? 
Well, you know, as a former player, it's always easy to put the hat on and, and, and be a fan and be a you know, fairly informed fan as a former player. What I liked about it, irrespective of how you feel about the call, is that Coach Rivera has a strategy. He's called Riverboat Ron for a reason. There is a strategy to how he plays the game. It is aggressive. It is forward-leaning, and he's trying to bring that culture to the team. And I think when you're trying to establish a strategy and a way of being, you've got to be decisive and roll with it. So agree or disagree from, from my vantage point doesn't matter. What I love is that he, as a leader, role model what's important. And I actually need to do that on the business side. I need to be super clear about what our strategy is, super clear about the culture we're going to set and make decisive moves behind that and, and, and own it if it doesn't go well and own so it, it, but keep, it, keep powering forward. Jason, it's, it's pick them. What should I do? <laughs> well, I mean, you got to go. You got to you got to you got to play on us. You know, um, we're going to win this game. OK. okay. You know, you did help the Giants out. I mean, that they needed that for the, you know, for the for the first win. No, too soon, too soon. <laughs> yeah, too soon to talk about. All right, Andrew. Jason, I have, I have a TV rights question. TV rights question for you. For for a very long time, we've sort of speculated about whether ultimately you're going to start seeing football, like Sunday night football, for example, or Monday night on an Amazon on a YouTube. Uh, in a meaningful way and effectively taken away from the, the traditional linear networks. How much closer to, to that day do you think we are now? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm not as tapped in yet to the league-wide conversations on media and broadcasting at the league level, which is what you're talking about, you know, the games and streaming of games and all of that. Um, but I do know that there's been innovation with our broadcast partners already across the league uh, to provide more games um, um, in alternative times, provide all 22 replays to provide things in streaming. But what I do know about is what we're innovating on internally. And I'm quite proud of what our media and content creation folks are doing. They're trying to take a real innovative approach to create more content that's relevant in different ways, melding football with fashion, melding football with gaming. And we have partners that we're, we're working with. In fact, in gaming, we've got Anto the Boss, who is uh, a, a famous gamer, who is now a host of one of our our social programs. And so I think we're trying to innovate at the team level. And I think the league is trying to innovate. And, um, you know, I'll learn more the longer I'm in this role. But I think you're going to see some changes real soon. Hey, Jason, I know one of the things you've been working on is trying to come up with a, a new name for the Washington football team. I read recently that it might stick around. That name may still be a placeholder for the 2021 season, too. What can you tell us about that? Well, as, as you all know, you know, in, in the business world, these things take time. But more than just it being a business decision that requires research and all of that stuff, it's also a really important one. You know, this is the identity that will shape the next hundred years of this franchise. And it's really important that we not just engage our fans through digital, social media, have them fill out a poll. We need to not understand what they want, but why they want it. And I don't think we understand our fans well enough. That's one of the, my, my observations coming into this role. We, don't, we need to know them better. Um, we need to reestablish trust and we need to understand the why of what they want behind the name and identity. And so we're actually going to take the time to do this right and speak with them, not just virtually, uh, you know, not just through you know, social media engagement, but really speak and understand. And so in order to do all that right, and then, of course, all the process stuff and copyrights and all that, it's going to take some time. Um, and that's all, that's all we've been communicating. Yeah, hard to do that when there's no fans in the stadium. Do you have any front runner names, though, anything you like the best? Oh, you trying to catch me up? No, <laughs> no, there's nothing. There's no front runner. There's no favorite. Um, and and I know it's hard for our fans to believe that 
but this is honest. If I'm one thing, I'm honest. Um, we, we are really starting from a blank slate and trying to engage them in the process. Okay. If there's nothing you like the best, what's the one you hate the most so far? Uh, I'll see. Um, let's see. Um, you know, um, I haven't seen any that I absolutely despise. So you know what? Let's, let's roll with it. You can't do the hogs, can you, Jason? <laughs> you know, I have, I have seen that one. I have seen that. Yeah, that one might be tough. That one might be tough. Really not that bad. I, I'm used to the eaters. football team. I'm used to it already, the Washington. It's kind of cool. It's like uh, right. that could. That could. If, I, I'm just, if, yeah. if all, it's like the country club. There's a golf course. If it's called the country club, it must be pretty damn good. I guess if you're called the football team, you must be pretty good, right? Maybe just keep it. <laughs> Right. I love it. I love it. Well, y- y- y'all are doing the work for me, so just send send me a. <laughs> right. All right. Hey, Jason. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Okay. Likewise. Next on Squawk Pod, the short life of short form video company Quibi. It's sexy. It's digital. You have all of these media companies giving a little bit of a, I think, actually a misimpression to the public and possibly even the other investors just about how sexy this all really was. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Short-form entertainment service Quibi announcing yesterday that it is shutting down. That's just about six months after it launched. The company was founded by Hollywood producer Jeffrey Katzenberg and former HP CEO Meg Whitman. It raised $1.75 billion ahead of its launch back in April, and it featured short-form videos or quick bites. That may be part of the problem. They were looking to hit up people who were maybe commuting and doing different things, and obviously that hasn't happened much since the service launched. Investors, though, include some pretty big names. Disney, AT&T, and our parent company, Comcast. Quibi said that it would return remaining funds to investors. It was sexy, everybody. You know, the, the, yeah, Katzenberg, right? Andrew, I was thinking, and Becky, but we've talked about succession before. And I don't know whether it's based on the Murdochs or what, but I think the Murdochs got in here, too. I think, you know, didn't Fox have an investment here? It's sexy. It's digital. It's, you know, it's like, oh, we don't want these legacy assets. I'll jump on anything that that seems like it it might be like new age and sexy. And I think they're shutting it down to have something to give these people back, aren't they, at this point? Yeah. Well, no, the. Yes, but the, the truth of it, and, and it's, it's sort of underreported what's really happened here. So a lot of the big media companies, including our parent company, as you said, Disney, so many of the other big Hollywood companies that got involved in this, for the most part, they were the equivalent of what are called round-trip deals. So they would invest $25 million in the company, 
But at the same time, there was a content uh, production arrangement on the other side of it so that they would effectively get back, in some cases, more than $25 million in terms of content deals. So for the, for the most part, the media companies are not the ones that are the big losers here. In fact, in fact, they were probably either net gainers or they'll come out sort of, you know, at par, if you will. The, the, the major losers are actually some of the big banks that put money into this. Uh, Alibaba that came in late uh, into this investment. But you're right. What really happened here was you had all of these sort of media companies giving a little bit of a, I think, actually a misimpression to the public and possibly even the other investors just about how sexy this all really was, knowing that they were actually going to make money as content players in this, and they were rooting for this to succeed um, less necessarily from the, I mean, they all love if it made money as a company so that their equity would have value, but really because if this thing succeeded, they were going to end up buying a lot, a lot of content from Hollywood. Do, do we now think that watching, you know, a short little snippet on your cell phone, is, is that not something that's going to catch on? I, I mean, I, I, I'm not ready I have no interest in that, but what happened? Well, I, don't know. Look at I mean, TikTok. if anybody could pull this off, it would have been, at least that was the way the thinking went. Would have been I think there was an execution issue. The, I think the, con I, I watched it. Uh, the content, I don't think was, the quality of it was not where you wanted it to be. I'm not necessarily a believer the pandemic was ultimately the problem unto itself. I think people will helped. watch short form stuff, but not necessarily drama short form stuff or comedy short form stuff. They'll watch news short form stuff the way YouTube works right right okay all right i don't know i yeah anyway uh not for me uh, south cool name quibi it's open it's available for somebody to do something else i don't know that sounds like a uh sounds like a submarine sandwich place isn't it no, what is that no that's uh quizno and that's squawk pod for today on our rundown tomorrow, the last candidate debate before the 2020 presidential election. Check out this podcast tomorrow for highlights and analysis on the issues that matter to investors and business. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod. We are available free wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.